So I have this little uh, introductory quote from John Calvin that I came across. Someone tweeted it on my Twitter stream, and I thought, oh, that rather fits. And uh, John Calvin evidently said that the purpose of the gospel is to make us, sooner or later, like God. Indeed, it is, so to speak, a kind of deification. Uh, not a literal deification, but a deification insofar as it is a becoming like God. And I believe Orthodox theologians uh, often uh, have talked about the way in which you know, Christ became man in order that uh, man may become like God. God became man in order that man may become like God. Oh, ooh, look at this. Uh, yeah, just any... Uh, or here would and then uh -huh. oh and it vibrates right yeah marvelous thank you that's really useful thank you yeah and I have a, a painting here of um, obviously Jesus washing um, probably Peter's uh, feet uh, from the uh, instant you know, when it was the servant's job to wash people's dusty feet when they, they came in and Jesus famously takes on this, this servant uh, role uh, and sets it as an example and says, you know, I, 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 now that I, who am your master, am behaving like this towards you, how can you not behave like this towards uh, one another? Uh, so we'll pick up on those as we, as we uh, get into this topic of Christian identity. I've got until 11, uh, so do not feel backwards about asking me questions as we, as we go through. Uh, let us uh, derive as much from this as we can. So, of course, I come from a philosophical background, and being a philosopher, I'm obsessed about defining my terms before we get into things, so I thought, well, what does it mean to talk about identity? What is an identity? Um, and that drove me to thinking about, well, uh, what's the relationship between a, a, a definition and an identity? So, you know, a, a definition of something is a, a description of what a thing is. Uh, it's a way of understanding uh, the nature of something. I reckon an identity is uh, the description or the set of descriptions that you use to define yourself. Your, your sort of self-identity, how you understand what kind of thing uh, you are, uh, what sort of person are you, what is your identity. And we may indeed have several different identities. Um, more so perhaps today than ever before, where uh, people can be tempted to have their online identity uh, and they may uh, log into some uh, massive multiplayer online world under another identity and have a Facebook page under another identity uh, and so on. Uh, but it's always been the case that we are, we are slightly different people with different groups of people. We're, we're a slightly different person when we're at home with our family uh, 
than when we're turning up to a job interview to present our ourselves, our identity. Um, but all of those identities, of course, are attached to, to, to us. There is a, a real uh, us uh, that uh, has these identities. So what is uh, the place of Christianity in forming our identity, of Christ in forming our identity? How central an identity is that? And of course, I, I think, biblically speaking, it, it should be our central identity uh, comes from our relationship with Christ uh, and should affect all of our other identities, as it were. Uh, any, yeah. You, you're talking about diff- like we don't have a core identity, but we have different identities. I think we do have um, a core identity. That there's a real us, um, but we, in as much as we may uh, behave differently in different situations. A, a different sort of aspect of our character may come to the fore. Uh, we may uh, identify ourselves to other people in different situations in different ways. So at, at the moment, you know, I, I'm behaving in a way that identifies myself to you as uh, an academic, as uh, a lecturer, um, as uh, someone with certain character qualities and knowledge and so on and when I'm relaxing at home with my parents over Christmas playing Monopoly that sort of identity is not to the fore. Uh, My identity as uh, a son, as a member of that family, um, as someone who's having fun playing a board game with them or whatever um, sort of comes to the fore. Um, if I were to go to a job interview, I'd present my, you present your sort of identity, you identify yourself to other people in a certain way. Um, but I think we're, we, are, we are more than just a, a sort of uh, a postmodern sort of view of oh, we're, we're just no real us, we're just our, our identities. I think that uh, is wrong, yeah. Yeah. So are you saying different identities, not different roles? If you know what I mean. Yeah, that, that's, those I think would be related. That's an interesting way of thinking of it. When we, when we play a different role, uh, again, different aspects of our character come into to the fore and into play in order to function in that role. Um, and by doing that, that may involve identifying ourselves to other people or presenting, perhaps you could say presenting Mm -hmm. ourselves as someone capable of fulfilling that role. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, You you take on, you know, you you put on the the doctor's coat uh, and so on and you go into the hospital and you do your job and you fulfill that role and you you are identifying yourself to everyone as I am a doctor. But there is more to you than being a doctor. <laughs> um, 
you, you go home and you take off the coat and you are a, a wife or a husband or whatever, but there's more to you than being a wife or a husband. That, that role um, is a role that you take. Uh, it's, it's part of what defines who you are in a sense. Um, but you don't stop being who you are when you retire, <laughs> or say. So I think there is a, there's a real you, um, and you fulfill various roles, you identify in various different ways, you think of yourself under various different identities, different roles, different ways you present yourself. Um, but some of those are more central to your, your self-understanding of, of, well, who am I, than other things. Um, that's why um, losing certain abilities, having certain illnesses, say, um, you know, it, it would be much more threatening to my self-identity, as it were, to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's and to be told, you're going to lose your ability to think clearly, than it would be to be diagnosed with the flu. <laughs> and be told, oh, you're going to have to spend a few weeks losing your ability to speak clearly. <laughs> um, because it's quite central to my, my sort of concept of who I am, that I'm someone who spends a lot of time trying to think clearly about things. And yet, you know, if I get Alzheimer's, it's, I'm, st I'm still going to be me. I won't be able to function in the way that I do now. Um, I'll still be the same person, even if my personality changes. So I think some, some of these sort of ways of identifying, what am I, who am I, are more central than others, uh, and when we come to thinking about what well, our identity in Christ, I think the question of well, how central to my identity is my identity in, in Christ is quite a crucial issue. Um, again, is being a Christian, a, Christ, a Christ slave, literally, is that a, a weekend hobby? Is that a way I identify myself in society because it's the expected thing. Lots of people self-identify on the census form in, you know, that we have in Britain, for example, is, you know, they ask you, what, what religion are you? And they say, oh, Christian, because, oh yeah, I was, I was baptised. I never go to church. Well, I might go to the carol service once a year because the kids like it, you know. but. People think, well, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not Muslim, and I, I do believe in some kind of a god, and so that's what I am. Um, but that's not quite a sort of a, a serious a Christian identity as the Bible seems to want people to have, <laughs> uh, as it were. Yeah. Mm, good, probing questions. Thank you. So, what am I, but also what am I going to be? How does that, the thought of what am I going to be, what am I becoming, 
How does that affect our identity? What defines my journey from what I am to what I'm hoping to become? There's these three, I think, key different aspects. It's not just, an identity is not necessarily just a static thing. Uh, like, say, becoming a Christian was a matter from moving from one static identity uh, into another box that's a static identity. It can be, an identity can be uh, a dynamic thing with a, uh, the Greeks would say, a telos, a, a direction, a goal to it. How might different people from different worldviews answer these questions? Um, probably more subtly than I've put it here, but you know, you could say, uh, perhaps I'm kind of a naturalist might say, you know, what am I? I'm a particular kind of animal. Uh, what am I going to be? I'm going to be not existing anymore. I'm going to be dead. <laughs> uh, what defines my journey from what I am to what I'm going to be? Uh, well, basically, it's a fight against entropy, a losing fight against entropy. <laughs> That's life. You're born, you live, you die, get used to it. Uh, a pantheist, one who thinks that everything is God and God is everything, might say, what am I? I I'm deluded. Fundamentally, what I am is, is a delusion. I'm a self-deluded <laughs> That I am a self. That is a delusion. There is no self. Everything is one with God. And when I realise that, there will be no more me, and I will become one with God. So that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be one with the whole. And what defines my journey from one to the other is the process of enlightenment, whereby I come to realise my divinity and my lack of existence as an individual, so that I reach nirvana, Although it won't really be an I reaching nirvana. To reach nirvana is to realise my lack of an I. <laughs> oh, a Christian worldview might say, what am I? Might say something like, I am a forgiven sinner in discipleship to Jesus. What am I going to be? I'm going to be a, a, a fully matured child of God. What is, what's defining my journey from one state to the other? The discipleship of, of what Paul calls putting on Christ. Uh, what uh, theologians talk about as sanctification, becoming more sanctified. Uh, or um, Dallas Willard describes it as, as a process of spiritual, uh, spiritual renovation like you might uh, buy a building that is uh, crumbling and disused and has got water damage and is ideal for a DIY enthusiast, as the uh, retailers say. And then you, you put lots of work into shoring up the building and painting it and doing it up. And then you have a wonderful home. You have renovated it. And these three aspects of identity are, are inseparable. They, they inform one another. 
So there's a more sort of dynamic way of thinking about identity. Yeah. Hmm. So you may have seen this before from me. Uh, a reminder if you have, uh, an introduction if you haven't. Uh, spirituality or way of life, thinking about uh, Christianity and, uh, and other views on the world as incorporating a, a way of living. Uh, in English we would call that a spirituality. And I think of it as the, the combination of your, uh, your assumptions about reality, how you think about reality, your, your worldview in that quite narrow sense, um, your attitudes towards your assumptions about reality, um, leading to your actions and behaviour in the world. Or, or, so you have um, assumptions, attitudes, actions, or uh, another way of putting it, I put it sometimes, head, heart, hands. Uh, three points beginning with H. You may be able to tell I was brought up in a Baptist tradition where sermons traditionally have three points all beginning with the same letter, so you're meant to remember them because it doesn't really help. You've forgotten them by the next week. But anyway... Uh, so uh, it's your, your head, your thinking, uh, your heart, not, not just in terms of the sort of modern use of heart to mean where you feel stuff, um, but the heart in the sense of how you commit to things. Um, you make sort of uh, choices with your head and heart that it would encompass worldview in the sort of sense that James W. Sire, for example, talk, talks about in his um, book, the, the Universe Next Door. Uh, and then Sire will explore how that plays out, say, through, through people's actions in creating culture and how culture reflects people's worldviews. Um, and I sort of just incorporate that whole thing in to say, well, well, all our actions flow from, are influenced by our, our head and our heart. It's that combination that leads us to behave in ways that are characteristic of that particular spirituality. Yeah? So, head, heart, hands. Now... I think that's a, that's a completely sort of general, generic definition of spirituality and it's just that different spiritualities put somewhat different content into those categories. Um, but you can see that this sort of understanding of how people function uh, biblically is on the right track at least because if you look back into here's Deuteronomy 31.12 uh, where it says uh, to assemble the people, uh, men and women and children and the foreigners residing in your town so that they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of the law. They're going to read out the law. Uh, so learn, you know, understand what the law is, your head, but learn to fear it. Have, and that means respect rather than uh, necessarily just sort of wobble in your boots. Uh, learn to respect the Lord your God and consequently follow, act in the right way, the words of this law. 
which probably informed the way Jesus thought about these things. And he says, of course, famously in uh, various slightly different replies to the, the question about the greatest commandment when you read it in the different uh, Gospels. But I think it's fair to boil it down to him, him saying that for him, true spirituality means loving God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. Uh, and that's the same basic uh, categories. Or Paul in um, Colossians three fourteen to 17 here. Once you have this structure in mind, it, it starts popping out all over the place to you. So Paul says, uh, above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So it's talking about love and peace in your hearts. To which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful, your heart. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. This is more about you're thinking, thinking wisely, meditating upon Christ's teaching, and so on. This is your mind. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So because of what you're thinking and you're learning from Christ, this, this results in praise and thank, thankfulness with your heart. And whatever you do, as a result of this learning and these attitudes that you're developing from what you're learning, whatever you do, all your strength, in word or deed, do everything in the name, the character of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul is saying this process of discipleship to Jesus involves going from, you know, head through our hearts to our actions. Or uh, Romans 12, 1. Be renewed through the, the, the renewal of your mind uh, so that you can test and approve with, you know, have an affirmative attitude towards God's will. So, so hopefully... Spirituality, I think it always uh, is aiming at this um, to bring a greater sense of, of wholeness or integrity to your identity as a person. Um, that as you bring your assumptions and attitudes and actions into harmony with one another more and more, that, that leads to, to personal sort of integration of your character, your identity. Your identity and character is formed more and more by your spirituality. You're sort of internalizing this spirituality so it becomes what forms your character. So it becomes central to your identity through time as, as it sort of pulls the different disparate bits of your character, of your identities so on together that's that becomes the core of what is your different identities and roles and functions in life and society and so on are all being informed by this 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 central 
defining character or spirituality of, of who are you. And I think all different spiritualities aim at that, and some will be more successful than others, and uh, some will be indeed positively harmful and disintegrative of wholeness uh, and personality. And, um, so there's a process of spiritual development, there's a process of, of internalization of these aspects leading to a sort of virtuous integration of your identity and character. To undergo spiritual formation or development means to make progress towards this goal of, of deliberately, of self-consciously informing all of your relationships through the internalization of a wisely chosen, uh, a precise, a well understood, a strongly held worldview, together with, with really appropriate habitual attitudes and actions. Um, I think the Bible chimes very much with uh, the sort of ethical thought you see in. Um, an ancient Greek like Aristotle, uh, who talked about m morality in terms of developing various virtues that become habitual to you. Um, people, when talking about ethics, often make distinctions between um, ways of thinking about right and wrong that are to do with following a rule. So you have the Ten Commandments, or, or the two greatest commandments, you know, love God and love your neighbour, or um, the highway code or whatever. You follow the rules. That's what morality is about. Um, and of course the Bible gives us, you know, these are rules. This is right, that's wrong. You should do what's right, don't do what's wrong. The ba the, these all boil down to respect God, who is the foundation of morality, because he is goodness, as it were, and love him and love yourself and your neighbour in that context. And everything else will sort of flow from that. But really that's saying, have a respect and a love for God's character. Become the sort of person who habitually wants to do what God would want you to do. M move from being the kind of you know, character who is in rebellion against that and, and shift to become the kind of character who is in sympathy with God and his desires. So, you know, Augustine famously said, um, Love God and do whatever you want. And at first sight, that sounds dangerously libertarian. Do whatever you want, just do what you like. That's a bit too postmodern. Nike, just do it, you know. Um, but of course, he said, love God and do what you like. Because if you really love God, then what will you want to do? Well, you'll want to do whatever it is that God would want you to do. <laughs> and so, yeah, love God and do what you like. <laughs> uh, love the Lord your God. <laughs> 
with everything you are, your whole spirituality, and everything else will follow. Seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else will be added to you. Um, so, it's not, it's not just about thinking, oh, okay, God expects me to behave like this, and I've got to just try really hard to follow the rules and be a good boy or girl. It's what a lot of sort of Sunday school teaching that I've come across basically boils down to. You know, Sunday school teaching as a way for adults to try to get children to behave nicely to their brother or sister. <laughs> you come across that kind of Sunday school teaching, you know, Jesus wants you to be nice and to share. <laughs> yeah? Um, well, yes, but that's far too sort of simplistic and uh, not really getting at the heart of the matter. Jesus wants you to become the sort of person who delights in loving other people because that's the kind of person that Jesus is. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Stratford uh, Caldicott, who's uh, written some wonderful books about uh, education from a Christian viewpoint and about uh, thinking about beauty in education and so on. I, I really love his books. Uh, he writes of the, the systematic ordering of the soul or the personality in, in pursuit of this ideal of integrity. That is the discipleship of thought by logic and will by virtue. And, and both of those are incarnate in Christ. The logos the, and that's a really difficult term to translate. Um, John uses it at the beginning of John's Gospel. You know, in the beginning was the Logos. And in English Bibles, we translate it as Word. And that's a really weak and terrible translation, but it's become traditional. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It's like, well, which Word was it? You know, <laughs> what, what? <laughs> It doesn't really make any sense unless you know the theological background. Uh, logos was a, a term that Greek philosophers uh, used. Um, they sort of, the way in which uh, a modern sort of atheist physicist like Stephen Hawking will talk in his, the end of his book, A Brief History of Time, about when we come to know the theory of everything, if there is such a thing, he's more doubtful about that these days, but he says, when we know the theory of everything, then we will know the mind of God capital M, capital G, you know. He doesn't believe in God, but he's sort of using that analogy, that metaphor, to sort of talk about humans really understanding the, 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 the order of reality, that the fundamental underlying structure of things, how things really work in a rational, you know, mathematically expressible way, when we get this theory that we could write down on a t-shirt, the theory of everything, da 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 QED, there we are, that's how the universe works. That's a similar kind of idea to these Greek philosophers talking about, how do we get beyond the, the surface appearance of this confusing world around us to some sort of rationally understandable mind or rationality or reason that 
we can understand, that is communicable. So, and then John says, in the beginning was the, the Logos, the underlying, rational, communicable, understandable thing behind everything that has become flesh to communicate itself to us. It's not that we're delving into reality to try and understand it. It's delving into reality to help us understand, oh, good grief, him. Not it, him. And, and it's not just uh, a rational order. Oh, that's very interesting. It's a, a hymn full of grace and truth. And we have, you know, love and self-sacrifice and all of these things that Jesus now reveals to be underlying the universe and our existence. And so John takes that term and says, hey guys, this is so much bigger than you, you thought it could be. Yeah. Ooh, exciting. Greek philosophy and the, and the gospel. Yes. <laughs> so the, the, um, this is uh, Abbot Christopher Jameson. The, the worship of, of whole life discipleship, he says, is a matter of the conscientious exercise of choice leading to o- obedient freedom. And our, our culture is so confused about freedom. Now, I want to be free. I want to have lots of choice in the supermarket. Uh, politicians are always going on about, we need to give people choice. They never ask, you know, why or what for. Or um, sometimes they go into the supermarket and there's a, there's a whole row of the supermarket dedicated to different kinds of bread. And I think, I want some bread. Um, um, uh, it's just paralyzing. You know, do I want sliced white, brown, granary, whole grain, added vitamins or not? This, that kind of granary, what shape? Or what thickness of slice? Thin, medium, large? It's like, I just want some bread. <laughs> you know, white or brown and give me a knife. You know, that would probably solve it. <laughs> like, too much choice. Um, is freedom really just having the choice to do anything you like? Or is it being free from the sin that mars us and pulls us towards disintegration and free to be an integrated, unified whole who finds it easy to do the right thing? I'm, I'm, I'm free to be good. Uh, think about God's freedom. Okay? God is the greatest possible being. Um, he's free to do anything he wants to do. But of course he can't want to do anything evil. Because he's perfect. And, and wanting to do something bad would be less than being perfect. Does that mean that God is less than free? Or is it actually a definition of what it is to have perfect freedom? To only be free to do things that it's good to do. 
And what kind of freedom do we want for ourselves when we put that as the kind of standard that we might think about against the sort of cultural standard of, hey, we're just free to do what I want. You can behave however you like. And then people usually add, so long as you don't hurt other people. And then the interesting follow-up question might be, what is your measurement of how your behaviour might impact and hurt other people? Particularly since your behaviour forms your character, and the more you form your character in a certain way, the less, in a sense, the less control you have over it. The point of forming a character is, in a sense, that you can give up having to constantly exercise a conscious choice over all of these decisions that you face in life and that you form a character that habitually just behaves in a certain way. Are you forming a, a, a character that habitually just does whatever it fancies to do at the time <laughs> or one that habitually tries to emulate the character of Christ or emulate a particular pop star or what have you, you know, all sorts of options out there in culture. Um, Caldine Swiss is an interesting chap, an American uh, philosopher that I met uh, this last year at the um, European Leadership Forum in Poland. He talks about worship bringing wholeness to the personality of the wor worshipper. He says, worship brings together everything in my life under one united whole. So it provides unity to all the diversity of my life. Uh, Joanna Collicott, who's a Christian psychologist, uh, talks about spiritualities as having an, an idealised self-image. So you think, it, it is, this is not the what am I, but the what do I want to become, ideally. And that idealised self-image is expressed in terms of certain principles that are in turn expressed in action programs. That, that's the high-fluting technical language. She then explains it a little more simply. She says, a less technical way of describing this is who I want to be, rules for living this out, and what I actually try to do in order to keep to those rules. So we have ideas about what sort of people we want to be, and those ideas lead us to make certain general commitments that we aim to live by. But we translate those commitments into, into particular actions in particular circumstances. Uh, so if we go back to thinking about that structure of spirituality, assumptions, attitudes and actions, you can see that what Joanna Collicott's talking about here maps onto that in terms of our idealised self-image, our commitments to certain general principles, and then how we act in particular circumstances because we're aiming at that self-image and trying to live by certain commitments that will get us there. Yeah. Just to, to get uh, a bit of an overlook here, mm. um, am I right in uh, asserting that uh, the spirituality 
is here a central part of a Christian identity uh, with discipleship and freedom as essential parts to it? Is that the yeah, okay, that how do we relate the, the, these concepts? So, yeah, I think... Uh, to be a Christian is to have a, a Christ-centred spirituality. Christianity is a spirituality, a way of living. Um, and it's a, it's a Christ-centred way of living in which, um, you know, what am I? I'm a, f- a, f- a sinner who's forgiven in Christ. What am I becoming? I'm becoming more Christ-like. I'm, I'm putting on Christ. How am I doing that? Through discipleship to Christ. Um, in that, that relationship, we'll, we'll talk more about what, what that means from a sort of um, cross-centred point of view in a, in a minute. Um, so to, in, to follow Christ is to have a, a Christian spirituality. And yeah, so part of, in terms of freedom, the, the kind of freedom that we are ideally aiming at is the kind of freedom that is that we see in Christ's character, which is the, you know God's freedom incarnate, and since we're we're following Him and trying to become more like Him, and He's helping us to do that in our relationship with Him, the kind of freedom He wants for us is the kind of freedom that He has, which is this this godlike freedom to be free of sin. Yeah. What I think is. Uh interesting here uh, for me is um, uh, when I normally have talked about identity mm. maybe I have uh, tied it up to something static mm. think of something yeah uh, one moment in history and talk about what's there yes but here I see more like a progress or like a movement or that's right direction or yeah I think of thinking of it as a as a, as a dy- dynamic process um, there, there, there is there's a definition in terms of I, I am this rather than what I was I, I am a forgiven disciple of Jesus but being a, a, a this you know there is a is inherently a dynamic thing there's a direction to yeah there's a directionality to it there's a you know a take up your cross and follow me Uh, yeah yeah good so uh, Dallas Willard is a a really interesting American uh, writer he he died a couple of years ago Um, he is he was a philosopher a very good philosopher um, but uh, he he moved into thinking and writing about spirituality and Christianity from from that viewpoint of thinking about it as a spirituality and has written uh, a, a number of books um, that you can find on Amazon and so on uh, that I think are very useful in this area. Um, so a, a quote from Dallas, Dallas Willard about 
thinking about the way in which Christianity has been presented, the gospel is presented, and it, as you were saying, this the sort of static notion of the gospel is, is often what's sort of preached, and often a, a notion of the gospel of, as the core of the gospel kind of is, uh, you're a sinner, and that puts you in danger of the wrath of God, and the point of the gospel is that you can't solve this problem, but don't worry, God solved it for you in, in, in Jesus. So become a Christian and then you'll be forgiven instead of under the wrath of God. And that's the gospel. I've heard a, a lot of teaching where that, that would be a sort of accurate summary of how the gospel is presented. Um, which is why I started with that quote from John Calvin, <laughs> uh, which put an emphasis on, on the dynamic nature of being a Christian, rather than the sort of, well, you, you've moved from this category, under wrath, to this category, forgiven, and that's it. <laughs> yeah? So Dallas Willard puts this in context. He says, as, as, liber as liberal theology from the sort of 19th century onwards, liberal theology began to degenerate into a mild form of social ethics. Sort of Christianity, well, it's really just about the, you know, the brotherhood of man and being nice to one another and uh, uh, having a high view of, of humanity, uh, sort of stemming out of the Enlightenment, uh, sort of Christian humanism, and, and really, that's what it's all about. And the, the, you know, the Gospels, the, the parable of, uh, well, the, the story of, of the feeding of the 5,000. You know, we don't, it's not reasonable to believe in miracles, of course. So the feeding of the 5,000 must be about how, how the crowd was so impressed by Jesus' moral, moral example that they decided to share their packed lunches with one another. Uh, and, you know, and everybody have, had enough because uh, Jesus basically turned them all into good socialists. And uh, from each to, you know, according to their ability to each according to their need, and, and sort of Christianity is uh, about doing good in society, and that's sort of where the focus of liberal theology kind of shifted, because you, you cut out all of the supernatural stuff about the gospel, and you're, but you're still trying to find something useful to say in it, yeah? So, uh, liberal theology degenerated into a mild form of social ethics. There's, there's a sort of reaction within the, the church against this, of course, and he says the fundamentalist evangelical movement came to stress the notion that if you believe the right things, and we want to still hold on to believing in the supernatural and in miracles and in the resurrection and so on, believe the right things, it will get you to heaven. So it's good that they're, they're holding on to a sense of, of the supernatural in reaction to liberal theology, but they're emphasising, because the liberals are, are believing the wrong things, they're emphasising, you've got to believe the right things, okay, in your worldview. So in an effort to preserve the faith, we came to emphasise that what really matters is what you profess. Can you sign up to the Evangelical Alliance expression of faith or this or that expression of the right beliefs about the nature of the Bible or whatever? This left believers very little help 
on how to actually enter into the life that Jesus himself modelled and taught. And of course there, there is a sort of social and ethical element to the gospel, um, but that came so identified with a sort of liberal, um, supernatural denying, they've got the wrong beliefs sort of emphasis on things, that there's a sort of overreaction in the other direction, he's saying, that it's emphasising believing the right things and putting so much emphasis on that that they forget to then go on to talk about what difference believing the right things makes here and now, beyond just the, oh, I've moved from under wrath to in, under forgiveness. Well, yeah, but what do I do with that here and now? Where, where's the dynamism of following Christ here and now in society and what that might mean and so on, you see? So, <coughs> yes, faith in Christ, you could put it like this, faith in Christ isn't, isn't actually about right belief so much as it is about right allegiance. Who has your allegiance? What is allegiance? Who is your king? You have allegiance to your king. I have allegiance to this king. You have allegiance to that king. He is my rightful lord to whom I owe my... Dedication. Uh, to whom do I dedicate myself? Yeah? Okay. And that allegiance, what's the word you're wanting to translate that as? Tuska. Tuska? Tuska. Tuska. Truscub, okay. That allegiance or truscub is a matter of both of the head and the heart, and as such is inevitably entangled, bound up with behaviour. So there's a sort of reminder here that faith in Christ is holistic, involves all of us, as Jesus says about the greatest commandment. It's love God with every aspect of what you are. Um, our identity as, as Christians stems from adopting this Christ-centred spirituality or way of living, of moving from what you are to what you're meant to be in Christ. Indeed, this is suggested by the, the earliest way in which Christians described themselves. There's a couple of occasions, if you look in uh, Acts 11.26, Acts 22.24, it's clear that in, in the early decades of the church, followers of Christ described themselves as people who were followers of the way. Think of the way in which Jesus in John's Gospel said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And Christians said, you know, what, what are we? We are followers of the way. That's how they described themselves. Which is a, a dynamic description. Um, it was non-Christians who came up with the term Christian as a t- form of abuse. 
because it, it, it's literally a compound of two different words that means messiah slave. Yeah. Ha <laughs> ha, you stupid messiah slaves. And then Christians adopted that as a term for themselves later on. So, as suggested by this description as the way, Christianity is a way of life, spirituality, centred upon following Jesus, who is the way, the truth, the life. The way to relationship with God. The truth of God expressed in, in a human life. The life of God available to us through trust in him. And, you know, Jesus... Uh, in the Great Commission, in uh, end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, 19, Jesus doesn't command, go out into the world and make Christians, because he doesn't use that term. Uh, go out into the world and convince people to believe in, in me so that they'll get forgiven. Doesn't even say that. He says, go and make disciples. Go and make go and make learners um, go and make apprentices if you like uh, someone who's going to follow me in learning how to live how to live in the kingdom the, the, the core of Jesus's message was his pronouncement of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is within you. Come and join the kingdom. And by the way, I am the king. I am the door. I am the way into the kingdom life. And go and make disciples of, of Christ. Back to uh, Paul again. This is from, uh, I want to look a little bit at the theology expressed by Paul in, in Romans of what being a Christian is. Uh, so this is from Romans 3, meaning it there, 20 to 26. It says, no one is declared righteous before God by works of the law. Yeah, you can't be good enough to sort of earn relationship with God. For through the law comes a knowledge of sin. Because we know the moral law, we know we fall short of it. But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God, which is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed or revealed. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who put their faith in him or trust him. For all have sinned, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, we've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. But they, i.e. anyone who wants to, uh, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death. He displayed Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, uh, of at-one-ment, literally of bringing us together. Sacrifice of atonement accessible through faith that is through and again the, the term is a complicated one through trust and allegiance dedication of yourself to Christ and this this public display of uh, 
of how to become at one with God through, through trusting his grace displayed on the cross was to demonstrate his righteousness uh, and that term righteousness doesn't just mean God is good uh, to Jewish mind it kind of means uh, God is good and that's showed in the way in which he intervenes to fight against evil and, and bring goodness out of the world to rescue us uh, God, God is righteous because he's the one who rescues Israel his righteousness is revealed in the exodus for example as he rescues them out of slavery and we see the righteousness of God and now we see the righteousness of God not just for Israel but for all humanity displayed upon the cross to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus's faithfulness so yet we have this salvation by faith by trust in God's that God is offering us you can have a forgiven relationship with me that's what he's expressing and telling us and displaying to us through Christ on the cross well then you know Romans 6 1 2 if it's not about meeting the rules in order to be good enough it's just just about having allegiance and trust in God and he'll forgive us and have a relationship with us even though we fall short of his glory well then shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase after all the more we sin the more God can forgive us the nicer God can be and that's you know that's all to God's glory isn't it this is the sort of Oh, well then, you're Paul, you're, you're, this, this gospel of grace is just an invitation to good grief. You're kind of saying, just trust Jesus and do whatever you like. This is a sort of objection. <laughs> it says, by no means, you know, this is not what you, if that's what you think I'm saying, you have misunderstood me. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? How can sin be the integrating principle of our identity and character? How can we be people who are forming our character around sin if we're meant to be people who are forming our identity around Christ? And indeed, Paul describes the Christian spirituality as a, a sort of participation, a, a taking part in Jesus' death and resurrection. We, we identify ourselves with Jesus on the cross. And this is picking up on the, the sort of Jewish understanding of the sacrificial system, uh, wherein in, in sacrifices... You, 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 have an, you have an animal who's going to be sacrificed and um, the priest sort of lays hands on the animal and it's a kind of sign that you know this is the animal that you've given for this and this animal kind of represents you uh, more it's, it's, it's your sin is being uh, sort of metaphorically put onto the animal 
It's like, this animal now represents my sin. My sins on this animal. And the animal is killed. It's like your sin is destroyed. And the blood from the, from the sacrifice is sprinkled on the altar um, by the priest. Uh, and so, because it, that's been given to God, given it over to God, and God knows in his temple on the altar, you know, that's a sign to God that you have entrusted him with dealing with your sin. And it's a sign, because God initiated that system, that way of thinking about it, it's a sign from God to the people that God is saying, I will deal with your sin. Give me your sin. I'll deal with it. I'll, I'll shoulder with it. I will, I will pay the price necessary to deal with this. I know you gave me the animal, but all life comes from me. I own the sheep on a thousand hills. It's not as if I need anything from you. Everything you have comes from me. <laughs> Um, and then Christ is both both the priest, as Hebrews talks about, both the priest and the sacrifice. And he, he, he is the priest who comes into heaven, not with the blood of an animal, but with his own blood. Um, he becomes the one upon whom we put, metaphorically, our, our sin. Um, as God's way of, of, of saying, this is, this is a once-for-all sacrifice. We're going to stop this repeated sacrificial system. We have a, a, a one-time sacrifice. And then Paul goes further with this idea, idea of sort of identification, representation of sin and the sinner in this sacrificial system. Uh, and in Romans 6, 3-23, as do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, so you know, in baptism we, we identify ourselves with Christ dying on the cross as we go down into the water, uh, a picture of dying, and are pulled up out of the water, a representation of rising in the resurrection to new life. Yeah, that's the the, the imagery. Uh, what's expressed in baptism we're baptised into Christ Jesus into his death and his resurrection we were buried under the water therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised up out of the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life for if we've been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must, as you see, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Now he's not saying, because you've trusted Jesus, and you know, as expressed in, this, in the, the rite of baptism, 
you are no longer a sinner. <laughs> and you say, but, but think of yourself in this way. Have this as your ideal self-image, as it were. That you have died to sin and you are living in discipleship to Christ, to God. Consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, uh, as, as you let sin, sinful things, form your identity and, and continue to shape your identity. That just, it was habit, habit forming. Lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. You had this uh, sinful spirituality. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So clearly he's saying this is a process, there's a goal here and a process of, of aiming to get there, but you have this new identity. You, 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 are, you are a new creation in Christ. You're saved, but you're not saved yet because you're not in heaven. <laughs> kind of, uh, there's still a struggle with sin. He's not saying there's no struggle anymore because you've died to sin and you're in Christ. But he's saying let this form the core of your identity. This identification with Christ's death and resurrection. Righteousness leading to sanctification of, of being renovated to become more Christ-like. For the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death being cut off from God and personal disintegration. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And by eternal life, of course, that doesn't just mean whoopee, a life where I'm not going to die ever. I just will keep on existing. Uh, it's so much richer than that. You know, this, this, this is eternal life, says Jesus in John's Gospel. This is eternal life that they know you and the Christ whom you have sent. So this is eternal life to know, to experientially be in a relationship with God through Christ. Uh, it's a quality of life, a way of living that we were designed for. So that, that spiritual communion and identification and a giving a, a sort of allegiance of our identity to, to God through, through Jesus of course that does not earn our salvation it's something we do but it's not a doing that earns salvation it's a doing that, that if you like appropriates that, that, that starts unpacking the gift that receives and starts unpacking the gift of this, this communal new covenant relationship. It's another thing Jesus did on the cross. He established a new, the new covenant. Um, in the Old Testament, the covenant with Abraham and so on is established through a sacrifice, through the shedding of blood. Um, think of the way in which, you know, an old-fashioned way of sort of signing a pact, uh, take a blood oath. We're from different tribes. 
but you will now meet, be my brother. And they cut their hands. You see this in films. I cut their hand. They cut their hand. I'm like, right, shake on it. Our blood is mingled. We are now one. You know, we've taken an oath in blood. It's like God makes an oath in blood with Abraham. And Jesus on the cross makes an oath in blood and establishes a new covenant. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's that kind of primal sort of way of understanding a contract. Um, uh, God speaks to humanity at a very uh, primal, basic level. <laughs> uh, understandable across cultures. You know, cultures who don't have lawyers and, <laughs> and so on. Um, and that, 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 that we get into this relationship of, of, yes, salvation, but salvation involves renovation of sanctification with God in Christ that he makes available, he displays on the cross and makes available to everyone. Um, uh, so that's a little bit of sort of how, how would you sort of see this in the, the letter of, of Romans? Yeah. Before I pause there, before I dash on. It seems to me we are going to relate this to the lecture yesterday, uh, the one I was here. I think the spirituality uh, should be compared with the core identity that is something that can be. Uh, uh, Good. <laughs> I'm sure that was marvellous. Good, moving on. <coughs> um, there's an atheist writer who I found, atheists are sometimes quite useful, say insightful things, uh, it's good to quote them when they do. Uh, atheist writer called uh, André Comte-Sponville, uh, he's French I believe, Comte-Sponville. Um, he has had a little book on a, 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 a sort of atheist understanding of spirituality, which is interesting. Uh, and he observes that in cultures that believe in one God, uh, people get bound together, sort of horizontally as it were, we get bound together by the fact that all of them feel bound to God, uh, sort of vertically. And he says it's like, uh, like the, the interweaving of a, of a, uh, of a, of a uh, when you weave something, you get the warp, the woof, the two different directions and that makes the structure. Um, the warp and woof of the religious material, the community of believers is as powerful as this double bond is solid. And I think Jesus, love God with everything, love your neighbour as yourself in that context. These two directions. He says it's communion, this communion that creates the community far more than the other way round. We have a community because all of us commune in sharing this thing that gives us an identity. We get a communal identity.
because all of us share in the same thing that gives us an identity. It's that leads to the communal identity. It's very hard to have a community without something in common in which we commune to be a community. Be that supporting a football club, we are the community of supporters of this football club, or a church. It's a communion that turns a human group into a community instead of just competing individuals. So there's a, there's a communal community aspect to Christian spirituality, of course. We've been talking about it thus far as if, as if it were just an individualistic thing. It's about me and my relationship with God. But I am communing in Christ in whom you are communing and he loves you as well as me. And actually he loves Andre Comte's Bonville as well. <laughs> uh, and so whatever I may happen to feel about him, that's going to lead me to love him as well. <laughs> yeah? Uh, he says to commune. I think this is really, I found this really helpful. He says to commune is to share without dividing. Says so that might sound like a paradox where material goods are concerned, it's impossible. He says, yeah, you, you cannot commune in a cake, for example. Uh, the only way to, sh to share a cake is to divide it. We've got one cake, how do we share in the cake? Well, I need to divide it into one, two, three, four, five, six slices. We all get a slice of the cake. We've divided it up. But he says, in a family or a group of friends, on the other hand, people can commune in the pleasure they take in eating a delicious cake together. The way in which community is formed around sharing food. We, we even talk about, let's share a meal together. Well, literally speaking, you can't do that because I need my portion <laughs> and you need your portion. <laughs> but in a deeper spiritual sense, we do. We share a meal together. We, we enjoy the food more because we're enjoying it together. We're communing and that forms a bond of community. Jesus was famous for inviting to table community communion, to meal with him, people who were on the outside of Jewish culture. And the Pharisees looked, looked down on him for socialising with. You keep socialising with tax collectors and prostitutes and dis disabled people and, you know, lepers and they'll make you impure. You can't share with them. And Jesus was saying, no, I'm, I'm here, I'm inviting everyone into community with me, with God. Who does he think he is? Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So uh, community is formed uh, by partaking in the meal. And here's another aspect, way of thinking about 
the cross and the Last Supper, when Jesus says, you know, this bread is my body broken for you, this wine is my blood spilt for you, do this in, in whenever you, you have this meal. Um, now, did, did that mean Jesus thought we should have a communion service once a year at Passover? Or every time that we drink bread and wine, which is basically every meal <laughs> in that culture? Um, I don't know. Most churches seem to hit on, well, let's have communion twice a month or something. It's like, yeah. Uh, but he's saying, you know, when you eat this bread, and we, we have the communion and we're accepting the bread and the wine at the, at the communion rail. We do. We kneel down and have it in the Church of England. <coughs> a, a cultural way of thinking about that in cultural context is I am accepting the food offered to me by Jesus as a sign of this new covenant relationship. He's extended to me table fellowship with him, with God. Wow. And accepting that table fellowship puts me in a sort of obligation to him. All around the ancient world, and this applies to sort of ancient Greek culture as well, so the Greco-Roman culture, um, because um, you didn't have the same sort of social in infrastructure as we do in, in the West today. When you were travelling, um, I'd studied classical civ and we, we read the works of, of, of Homer, um, the Odyssey, the, the Iliad and so on. Um, someone turns up at a stranger's door and says, you know, I, I need shelter for the night, please. Yes, yes, come in, come in, ha have a meal. And they have a meal together. And at the end of the meal, the host says, so, tell me about yourself. Who are you? And why is that at the end of the meal rather than something that happens at the door? Knock, knock. Uh, hello, who are you? It was because, irrespective of who you are, I should give you shelter and table fellowship because I might be in the same situation one day and I want shelter and table fellowship and I want that regardless of who I am and who I might be to the person that I need that help from. I don't want them saying, oh, oh I see, you're, you're, you have allegiance to King Agamemnon of such and such. Oh, my family fought against that family in the war. And there's bad blood between us and I don't want to help you. Well, you could take that attitude, but then if you did, other people might take that attitude towards you as well. <laughs> um, so the, the social etiquette is, I give you shelter, you're under my roof, you've taken part in, in table fellowship with me. That's kind of like, that's, that's truce. You are safe. We have established a social bond now that means you're safe. And I can now say, so, who are you? And, you know, it doesn't matter what you now tell me, what your social status is or what your allegiances are or whatever, because we, this relationship is now functioning under this social structure of, of table fellowship. This is something picked up in, you know, the Game of Thrones, 
books or series. Um, Game of Thrones picks up on this and they, they talk about uh, taking bread and salt. You've come un under my house's roof, you've shared bread and salt with me, that means I can't hurt you. And there's a famous uh, incident in one of the, one of the, one of the books where uh, a particular castle has taken in people and had shared table fellowship with them and then he murders them all. And everyone is completely shocked by this. Um, you know, obviously murdering them all would be to his benefit and so on, but he's broken table fellowship. You know, it's one of the basic social structures that he has ignored by doing this. Um, and it's that kind of worldview that, that, you know, the communion is functioning within as well. And I think, okay, I'm, I'm receiving table fellowship with, extended to me by God through communion. What does this say about the, the sort of relationship between us? God's inviting me into a relationship, into a truce with him, uh, into an obligation with him, and he's extending an obligation, sort of socially speaking, to me through, through doing this. Paul doesn't just see Christ's death and resurrection as a sort of um, salve, uh, an ointment for a troubled conscience. Uh, say these uh, philosophers, Tim, Tim Byrne and Greg Restall, they, they're writing a paper about how to think about atonement. He says that this participatory strand in Paul's theology takes sin to be a problem of our identity. Sin is a problem of our identity. And the atonement doesn't just adjust our, our moral standing with God. You know, are we a, a forgiven sinner or an unforgiven sinner? That kind of level of thinking about it. It doesn't merely do that, they say. Instead, when we, if we respond to it, to it positively, this offer uh, of relationship, uh, it, it, in all, it, it begins a change in the kind of beings we are as we respond uh, to the cross and the, and the communion and the new covenant relationship that, that Christ is establishing through that event. So it's a, sin is a problem of our identity and responding to Jesus on the cross inaugurates a change in the kind of beings that we are. So it's salvation by faith, not works, absolutely. But it's a faith that leads to works that bring this process of spiritual renovation in cooperation, in relationship with God. Putting faith in Jesus doesn't make one righteousness enough to measure up to the glory of God, as Paul says. It doesn't earn our salvation, but it does enroll us in a process of sanctification. So Mark 8.34, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must disown himself, his old self-image, sinful self-identity, and take up his cross, identify with the cross, and follow me. Dynamic. Matthew 11.29, Place my yoke on you and learn from me. Become my apprentice. Because I'm gentle and humble and you'll find rest for your souls. 
you'll find peace and integrity for your personality by learning from me, says Jesus. John 13, 14, 15. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Jesus doesn't just give us a list of rules to follow. He gives us an example to follow, and it's an example that inspires us to follow him. It's a, it's a moving, it's, it's, it's an appeal to our hearts, as well as our heads. Think back to what Dallas Willard was saying about the overreaction to liberal theology of just focusing on, it's about what you believe, believe the right stuff. Rather than saying the gospel is presented to all of us, head and hearts and hands, to change all of us. God, through Christ, communicates to us holistically at all of these levels. So this spiritual development, uh, Douglas uh, Grutehaus uh, puts it this way, he says, Christianity makes claims on the entire personality. It's not just a matter of mere intellectual ascent, although it does involve this. It's embarking on a new adventure in life. Rowan Williams, who's the former Archbishop of Canterbury, talks about spirituality for the Christian being a shorthand for life in the spirit, for staying alive in Christ. We develop the mind of Christ, something that Paul talks about. Uh, we embrace and inhabit a new way of life, a new set of divine and human relationships. That's another way of thinking about a spirituality, is about how we relate and have relationships with everything. How we have a relationship with God, how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to the world, how we relate to our neighbour. So what sort of relationships are going to define who we are? Uh, and the, the so-called cardinal virtues of faith, hope, love, very organically relate to these attitudes and assumptions and actions. <laughs> now, you know, there's sometimes a sort of theological debate, controversy, uh, certainly historically about um, the letter of James and does James contradict what Paul says about the gospel you know Paul says oh it's all about just you know have faith and salvation through grace just have faith and you'll be saved and James is all like oh no no it's about you've got to do the right things it, it might seem it's all about works faith without works is dead it's useless says James are they contradicting one another. Uh, no, they're not. Um, uh, James does not contradict the gospel of God's grace when he writes that faith without deeds is useless. James 2.20 Because uh, I've said some of these Greek words that we translate badly are very complex and James is using uh, the complex word pistis, faith, pistis, He's using it to mean a merely intellectual assent, a sort of head knowledge of the gospel that's devoid of the, the sort of religiously relevant allegiance. What was that? The word again? Tuska. 
<coughs> or trust would be another way of translating it. In, in the Greek mythology uh, about uh, Pandora and Pandora's box, when Pandora gives in to temptation and she opens the box, what escapes from the box is pistis, the spirit of trust, of good faithfulness, good fellowship, faithfulness to one another. And humankind loses faithfulness and trust, uh, unleashing these problems into the world. That's uh, where the, the term comes from in Greek mythology, pistis. So he's, he's using it to just mean a, a sort of head knowledge devoid of allegiance or trust. And of course this allegiance or trust naturally reveals itself in the characteristic deeds of the person who has that trust or allegiance to, in Christ. His point is that a, a commitment-free faith that, philosophers distinguish between a faith that and a faith in, it's one thing to have a faith that this table would bear my weight if I were to sit on it. You know, I can look at it and go, yeah, I, I reckon that table would probably bear my weight. It, it may be quite another thing for me to exercise a faith in that table by actually sitting on it especially if we dug you know a, a piranha filled pool of death just below it uh, yeah think piranha filled pool of death sharks with laser guns on their heads whatever you know <laughs> down there and it's like am I gonna sit on the table I've got to really express my faith in the table by sitting on it James is saying you can't just say oh yeah I believe that if you're not really prepared to trust it faith that isn't the same as a saving faith in allegiance to he says what good is it if someone claims to have faith, pistis, but has no deeds, no deeds that back it up. Uh, can such faith, as it were, air, air quotes here, such faith save them? Such faith without deeds is dead. It's, it's just a dead thing. It's not active. You're not really engaging in, in discipleship here. James 2, 14 and 26. So, for James, good deeds, works, are their in indications, signs of saving, that you have saving faith. But of course, for James as well, that saving faith trusts God for forgiveness without thinking that that forgiveness can be earned by doing enough deeds. He's not saying... You've got to do enough deeds to earn your salvation. So he's not contradicting Paul. James, indeed, many people who, who don't read far enough into James, later on in the letter of James, James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. If it were all a matter of judgment, we're up the creek without a paddle. <laughs> but mercy triumphs over judgment. It's those who are rich in faith he says, who inherit the kingdom that God has promised to those who 
do enough good things? No. To those who love him? James 2.5. Or has Jesus put the point, maybe a little bit sort of tongue-in-cheek, as we say in English, he's, he's responding, you know, what should we do, Lord? Earn our salvation, you know. Jesus says, this is the only work that God wants from you. Believe in the one who sent. And again, believe is too thin a translation. He says, this is the only work God wants from you. Pistuate in the one he has sent. Put your trust and allegiance in. Love me. Put me at the core of your identity. That's what God wants. <coughs> I referenced Romans 12, 1 and 2 earlier about this um, worship is the, St. Paul says, the, the intelligent or the reasonable ongoing submission of our, of our worldviews, our actions, our attitudes to the will of God. So that we we become transformed through that relationship. Yeah. Uh, do you have any reflection on um, uh, when you are trying to become more like Christ? Mm. Uh, where where is the room for, and uh, how does it work to be an individual, or are you trying to become another one, another person that you? are in, in terms of identity here. Yeah. And, and where is the, the individual individuality? Mm. Yes. Yeah, because some of, particularly some of the language Paul uses when he says things like, uh, for me, you know, it's not I that live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Uh, can, can sound like he's saying, becoming a Christian, is, it means basically giving up the, being the person that you are. Uh, giving up your identity and being sort of submerged within the identity of Jesus somehow. Um, I, I, I don't think he means that. I think, uh, it's not to be taken that way, I think that it is a process of, of really becoming the person that you, are, that you as an individual are meant to be, are designed to be. You are actually becoming more yourself it is your it is your true self that is marred and and defaced by sin and this process of spiritual renovation in Christ is is making you into who you really are supposed to be meant to be what is really the you you are designed to be and um, there's a there's a passage in the book of revelation uh, that uh, it, it, it's quite a strange passage. It, it talks about when we sort of get to the new heavens and the new earth, get to heaven, God will give to each individual a stone with their name written on it. Hey, oh, what? Huh? You know, I, I think that's I think that's a sort of picture of. Because in ancient cultures, name represented character. It's not just a label. A name represents someone's character. When, we, when you see God to face to face in the new heavens and the new earth, he will help you to understand 
your character in stone. It's like you have finally arrived at who you really are. And you, only, you can only really discover who you really are in close relationship with God. Because it's from him that, that, that you come and are designed. <laughs> um, he knows what you're designed for. And it's, it's sin that's getting in the way of that. And this, this putting on Christ, it's not that we all become clones of the man Jesus of, from Nazareth. It's that we become our real selves as individuals in community. Community is part of our individuality as well. Um, no man is an island, as the, the poem says. Um, that we find our true selves in, in Christ. Um, because Paul elsewhere, although he talks about, you know, it's Christ living in me, I'm becoming, and I'm put, put on Christ, and, and so on. He also says, no, Jesus, the, the church is the body of Christ. Are we all the same organ? Are we all an ear? Are, are all of us an eye? Can the eye say to the ear, I don't need you? Haha, <laughs> no, of course it can't. Can the ear say to the eye, I don't need you? No, of course not. Uh, God grows his body in the church and he gives gifts to each one. We're all a unique individual contribution to the body of Christ as we put on Christ. Um, so when you look at the teaching more broadly, there, there is this, uh, this allowance, this room for, as you say, individuality within this process of putting on Christ, becoming Christ-like, uh, this process of divinization. Um, so one is talking, talking about we will, we, we will come more and more to have the kind of freedom that Jesus and God have, the, the freedom to do the right thing, to have good habits and so on. But that doesn't mean that you know, we're all going to have identical good habits. You know, I become more Christ-like by developing good habits of um, thinking and writing about philosophy. You might develop more Christ-like good habits by, by practicing really hard at the cello and getting better at, at creating wonderful music that expresses the beauty of God through music. Um, and you, you gradually become more and more free to express worship as you become more and more a virtuoso at playing the cello. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I would just go screech and everyone would cover their ears. You know? um, so we all yeah, have that individual contribution, I think. Yeah. So identity in Christ is both given to us but when we become a Christian. Yeah. And it's a sanctification process. Yes. So is it a potential given within us that will be fulfilled? Mm -hmm. Or is it a clear identity? Mm -hmm. You're my daughter. Yeah. And then becoming like Christ. Yes. Are we talking about two different identities or one? Ah, interesting. So, yes, there, there's a definite new identity 
in becoming a Christian, you know, I'm a daughter of Christ, I am a forgiven sinner now, Um, I am a disciple of Christ when before I wasn't. So the definite what I am now is different from what I was. But part of that what I am now is is an entering into a process. What I am now is a forgiven child of God, etc., etc., who is entering into a process of becoming sanctified and more and more Christ-like, more and more the individual I'm meant to be, more and more the individual gift I am to the body of Christ, etc., etc. So I think it's a, I think it's a both and. There's not a contradiction between saying I, I have a new identity Part of that new identity is a a new ideal self that I'm striving towards, a different ideal self than I had when I wasn't in Christ. And that ideal self is 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 learnt through apprenticeship to Jesus. So if you if we're going to use like positive deconstruction Mm -hmm. on a postmodern way of saying identity, like I define my identity. In one way, we can say that yes, it is a process because yeah. we're moving towards becoming more like Christ. But it's not like we have haven't found it yet. It's right. Like within us. Yes. So you can approve the process. Yes. And like it's not quite there yet. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not yet fully what I, what I, what I can be and should be, but I do have a new identity. Part, part of what defines who I am as a Christian rather than as a non-Christian is the fact that I, I have embraced this particular process, this particular way of living, a way of living that forms me in Christ-likeness. Yeah. Um, does that, that help bring them, bring them together? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I exhort you, in view of God's mercies, present your lives as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. That's your appropriate, reasonable, intelligent act of worship. Don't be conformed to this present world, to non-Christian spiritualities and ways of living and so on. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God. So we think your mind, heart, proving what's the will doing, what is good and properly pleasing and perfect and so on. Yeah. yeah but uh, don't you also think that uh, one of the main differences is where to look for identity? That in Christianity you would look to God and to uh, his revealings in, uh, in the Bible? to clarify what your identity is, but in in postmodern you would have to construct it and try to mm. look in your feelings or something mm. like that. Mm. Yeah. I was just looking at like how can we because we've learned in colonial mm-hmm. to just approve what is similar. So the process of finding yourself is not like I was born with my identity, or, well, you were, but it's still a process. Mm. Yeah. That people are saying that oh, it's a process of finding who I am. Mm. And in one way, we can say, that's right. Mm. 
But like you're saying, we need to yeah. ask where are you going? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And what's the source of that? It's a process of finding, within a Christian worldview, yeah, yeah, it is a process of finding out more fully who I am, intent, who I have always been intended to be. So my identity comes from outs- fundamentally from outside. I'm, a, I'm created to be yeah, a certain thing. Yeah. But you are a human being made in the image of yeah, God. Right. That without sin should go in this direction. Right. I, I am a I am a defaced image of God. Mm. I am a fallen image of God. Uh, that identity comes from outside. The potentiality for me to become a forgiven child of God and redeemed is is within me. And is released through relationship with God through Christ by adopting a Christ-centered way of life, um, through pleading forgiveness and uh, giving allegiance and so on. Uh, so it's all from coming from out outside, and in relationship with a real other, that I become whom that real other God intends me to be. Whereas the, the, this sort of postmodern notion of I can change my identity, who I am, just by adopting a new, you know, sort of um, I'm going to present myself in a different way, and then I'm going to be a, be a different person, um, just from my own inner resources. That's where it, it it falls down. That that I that I have the authority to determine what what I'm going to be, what I should be. On a postmodern view, what the, there is no what I should be. There's just what I'm choosing to be. I have complete freedom to be anything I want, but I'm not free to choose to be what I should be, because there is no such thing as what I should be, what I'm intended to be. You see? So in the Christianity, you would have uh, to correct your own identity according to what's revealed in yeah to, to to revealed reality. Do they, are they correct according to the yeah, knowledge? Yeah, that's right. That's what that's Paul in Romans 12, 1 there is saying, you know, test and approve God's will. Be transformed through the renewing of your mind so that you think like God wants you to think about things. So you approve of what God approves. So that you behave in the way that God wants you to. Yeah. Like yesterday, we were talking about identity being a core. Mm-hmm. So would you then say that God has given us the whole core of our identity, like it's one entity, and then the, we use our life to discover what that is, or is it added to it during the sanctification process? Yeah, it's maybe you could think of it as that core as a, as a seed of what God wants us to grow into. So it has the potential. Yeah, it's it. it has the potential within it. But that potential is a potential that's designed to be activated through having a relationship with God in Christ. Um, but I also wonder if this identity is totally fixed, so to speak, hmm. in advance, or if there is some sort of freedom you can choose. 
between several different good things oh, that yeah. through your life uh, and your choices uh, contribute to yeah. shape your identity that will become uh, uh, pure mm, mm. for the eternity. That will be an expert Yeah. Yeah, uh, we should take us into deeper theological waters than we have time to explore now, I think. But yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and we'll get us into that whole debate maybe as well. So yeah, I, I, I think certainly from, from, from our point of view, um, don't think as of God's will for your life like a tightrope over this piranha-filled pit we've imagined down here, where there's what God's will for your life and he keeps it hidden from you so that you have to try and find it and if you don't get it right then you've departed from God's will for your life and you will fall into the piranha pit, fill, pit of doom uh, whilst God sort of laughs behind your back at how stupid you are for not finding his will for your life. Okay? If, if that's your picture of trying to follow God's will <laughs> abandon it please, relax uh, God has been very clear about the things he wants to be clear about, about what his will is. Um, should I commit adultery? Um, no. You know. Um, but should I go and take this college course, or should I learn the cello or whatever, um, if God was that bothered about it, he would make it clear. <laughs> because he's not a sort of trickster in the background of your life, making you walk over a type like That's not his character, yeah? So, if it's not, like, clear, if it's like, oh, I don't really know, maybe God's attitude is, well, yeah, you could do either, they're both good. I mean, you have to make a choice, because you either dedicate your time to becoming a good enough musician, or you dedicate your time to learning a language really good enough to become a translator, or whatever, you can't do it all, but they're all good. Anything that you can do whilst in good conscience holding my hand, as it were, I'll come with you. And, yeah, so, yeah, relax about that. <laughs> Love God, and do what you like. <laughs>